Again, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1, and we will stand for the reading of God's word. I will read for you Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, as we are rapidly making our way through this, you're laughing, <laughs> as we make our way through these open, this opening salutation of the Apostle Paul. So follow along with me as we hear God's word, beginning in Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. This morning we find our way back into this series of Romans which we've entitled this particular section, The Gospel According to God. After Paul has introduced himself in verse 1 and he introduces himself in that manner as a bondservant, a slave of Christ, he is a called apostle and he's been set apart, he says, for the purpose of the gospel. Notice with me that it is the gospel of God that now becomes the focus. We see Paul in verse 1, uh, got ahead of me. <laughs> we see Paul in verse 1, uh, he's the, this threefold manner of how he describes himself. And notice how he says, for the gospel of God. And now he's going to break into a series of thoughts by which he uh, expands on this idea of the gospel, the first of which now is the continuity of the gospel, the continuity of the gospel. He says in verse 2, by way of reminder, that this promise of God, this gospel of God, was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we noted how the, uh, we noted the continuity of the gospel, that the gospel is good news, but it's not new news. What Paul is preaching is not new and innovative. It's what has been begun all the way back, as we noted, in the book of Genesis, when it was first proclaimed to Eve in the garden with the promise of the coming seed, her seed, who would crush the serpent's head, thus defeating the power and the penalty of sin, that is death. This is the same gospel that God preached to Abraham, uh, according to Galatians 3.8. It is the same gospel that David would proclaim in a multitude of psalms, in Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, and others. It is the same gospel that Isaiah promised to Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14, those very familiar words which you will be hearing much of, I suppose, in the coming weeks. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The good news is not new news. 
So Paul was not preaching something new, but this good news that God has promised throughout the Old Testament. This is the continuity of the gospel, and we've examined that. The second point that we considered was found in verses 3 and 4, the content of the gospel. What is the gospel about? A better question would be, who is the gospel about? Because we see the gospel in verse 3 was not only promised beforehand, but the gospel of God is concerning, it says, it is about his son. Jesus is the content of the gospel. The gospel is about him. The gospel points us to him. Without the gospel, we cannot rightly know him and what he has done. And just what is it about uh, Jesus that Paul wants his readers to grasp? Well, we noted two things. He wanted us to note his humiliation, that he was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. The Son of God in glory became flesh. So we see his humiliation. We also see his glorification. He was raised with power, declared to be the Son of God. John would state it a little bit differently in this first idea of his humiliation. John states it. Again, you'll probably hear these words in the weeks ahead. And the word became what? Flesh. Carne. He became meat. And so the idea is that the glorious God who has reigned in heaven for all eternity has now come to earth and has humbled himself. He's been in humiliation. The word became flesh. This one who has always dwelt face to face with God, who is in fact God, a very God, became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. This is Christ's humiliation. But in verse 4, he goes on to speak of the glorification of Jesus as we read that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. And so again, the second thing we're introduced to then is not only Jesus' humiliation and his glorification, but we're also reminded by the Apostle Paul of one of the glorious truths when you think about Jesus. What should you think about Jesus? That he was both man and God simultaneously. He has two natures united forever in this one person, Jesus Christ. This Jesus is both human and divine, both truly God and truly man. Jesus then is the content of the gospel. This is what we've already considered. So now let us turn our attention to our primary verses this morning, verses 5 through 7, where we will note the commission of the gospel. I was thinking this morning about the, the application. As a preacher, I'm supposed to get up here and tell you the truth of God's word. And then I'm supposed to answer some so what questions. So what? What does this mean for you? How is this going to impact your life, change your life? What changes should you be thinking about as you consider these truths? Well, Paul supplies the application for us here in verses 5 through 7, the commission of the gospel. Let me just read those verses once again. Verse 5, through whom, that is Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, having explained that the key character of the gospel is Jesus Christ, Paul now moves to the so what. 
So what? What does that mean for you and for me? What did it mean, first and foremost, as we're looking at this, for those who first heard it? And we've entitled this the commission of the gospel. What is a commission? It's a co-mission, a cooperative mission. It is the mission of Christ with which believers are now called to cooperate. Jesus has left this earth, and he's given his people a mandate, a call, a commission, an appointment by which they are to fulfill. Now, most of us are familiar with what we call what? The Great Commission. The Great Commission, that charge given to the disciples in, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You are familiar with these words. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There's his deity. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know what's being said here is because Jesus is the sovereign, supreme ruler over all of heaven and earth, he can, he has every right and every expectation to demand of his followers to make more followers. You and I are commissioned to make disciples, followers of Christ. And it's by the authority of Christ that we are to do this. And we are to do what? We are to proclaim, we are to teach them to do what? To observe, to know, to obey to believe and to do all that Christ has commanded. Well, if you're going to go out and compel other people, you need to follow Jesus. You need to obey Jesus. What should be true about you? You better know Jesus, and you better be obeying him. And so we have this commission. We're supposed to imitate Christ. We're supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to long for the image of Christ to be born in us so that we might reflect it to others. This is Jesus then calling those who have believed upon him to call others to do what? Believe. The best message I could give to you if you are an unbeliever in here is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel because it is your only hope of heaven. It is your only hope of reconciliation with God. This is what we find interesting, though, what Paul is reiterating in Romans 1, verses 5 through 7. Paul is taking this great commission that Jesus gave, and he's now reiterating it and giving it to all believers. This commission given by Christ to all believe, who believe in him. Christ believing the, the gospel commissions, it appoints, it sanctions, it charges all who believe to participate in the task. Not one of you is exempt if you are in Christ. All of us are to be participating in the task. And here we find Paul telling us now about this commission, beginning with what we'll call the agency of the gospel commission. Paul first states the agency. What do we mean? It's the means. Where's the source from which Paul and every believer receives this commission? Do I receive my commission to preach from Hope Community Bible Church? 
if, if the church were to say, hey, we're done with you, and not because I've done anything wrong, am I done? Do I, can I not proclaim the gospel? I'm not dependent upon the sanction of a, a human to preach the gospel. My sanction, my commission comes through, Paul says, through him, through Jesus Christ. It says, through him, we receive grace and apostleship. But I need to pause here. And I need to address this interesting question. Who are the we that Paul is speaking about? I had to kind of wrestle with this for a bit. There are a lot of commentators that just kind of rush right through this and say, well, Paul is speaking of himself and the other apostles because, well, he says we've received grace and apostleship. So he must be speaking about the other apostles. The problem is, is Paul has not spoken about anyone else. This is not like some of his other letters where he says, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. He's not speaking about anyone alongside of him. In fact, the very next statements are going to be directed to believers who are in Rome, those who are the called of Jesus Christ. And so uh, because Paul speaks of apostleship, we, we need to be careful that we don't immediately think, well, he's speaking only about Peter, like pe people like Peter or John or Matthew. It is possible that Paul is speaking of that specific grace and apostleship that was received by those men by the Lord Jesus Christ, but it seems more probable, based on the context, that Paul is at least referring to, um, to this idea of the grace that every believer has received that brings them into a saving relationship with Christ, and then the commission to be a sent out one who proclaims that particular truth. We see again in verse 1, Paul clearly speaking of only himself. In verses 2 through 4, he's clearly speaking about Jesus Christ. But in verses 5 through 7, he's not speaking about anyone else but those who are the called of Jesus Christ, and specifically to those who are in Rome. So it seems Paul has in mind here not those who are called apostles, but rather to anyone who believes on and follows the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the we that we are now going to consider a couple of attributes here, the attributes of this great commission. And what's the first attribute? He says, we have received grace. Notice what he says, we have received grace. The verb received there speaks of that which is given to grasp, to, to hold on. It's me giving you something that you then hold on to uh, once for all time. Grace and truth, we are told, is found only in Jesus, John 1.14. Paul begins this letter by reminding believers that grace is received. It is not earned. It is not merited. It is not something that you build up for yourselves. Grace is not something God rewards those who have managed to keep the Ten Commandments because not one of us is able to keep the Ten Commandments. Grace is not given be to those because they have been baptized or they've joined a particular church. Grace is never notorious. This is the first time we find the word grace used in the letter, but it will be used a number of times from this point on, and so we need to ask ourselves, Paul, what do you mean when you speak of grace? Well, generally, when Paul speaks of grace, it is in the context of saving grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is never notorious. 
This is an attribute of God that speaks of his unmerited, unearned, uncaused favor and goodwill towards sinners in Christ. Grace is found in God's granting to those who have now received faith everything necessary for life and godliness. We might think of the word grace as a sort of shorthand. When Paul speaks of grace, you're to think of saving grace. You're to think of what it means to be saved. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That what? Saved a wretch like me. This is an encapsulization then of all that God has done for his people in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is about grace. The grace of God revealed in Christ. With reference to saving grace, consider what Paul says later on in this letter in Romans 4, a couple of chapters over. In Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Listen to the word of God. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Beloved, saving grace is always that which is freely given to sinners out of God's own generous, compassionate, benevolent heart. And is that not good news? Because we could never earn what we need from God. Apart from such saving grace, not one of us would ever be saved. The believer will never be given an opportunity, not in this life and not in glory, to say, hey, brother Phil, stand up here now in front of all the myriads of the redeemed of all time and tell this great congregation of the redeemed how well you did to be allowed into heaven. You will never be able to congratulate yourself. All glory, all praise, all accolades, everything goes to Christ. We bow before him for what he has accomplished for us. The believer will never congratulate himself because he has nothing that he can contribute to merit his salvation. Human achievement amounts to nothing in regards to God's sovereign and saving grace that is not earned it is as Paul says here what received so one question is have you received the saving grace of God do you know this morning that you have received God's grace and you're not depending upon what you've done for a church or what if you've done more good things than bad in this life you're depending upon the work and merit of Christ Grace speaks of receiving that which we never deserve from God. What do we deserve from God? What are some things we don't deserve from God? Let me tell you what you don't deserve. You do not deserve forgiveness of sin. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet he is under no obligation to forgive you your sin. You are, he, he is not obligated to grant you eternal peace with him. He's not obligated to give you everlasting joy. And most wondrously, he's not obligated to deliver us from the wrath our sins deserve. And yet, by grace, unearned, unmerited favor, we receive grace. We who deserve nothing from God but his judgment. Instead, receive everything, everything, everything that is good. All of this belongs to us, according to Romans 3.24, 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Have you received grace? Have you received redemption through Christ? So here again, it would appear that when Paul speaks of grace, he is speaking of salvation, that, it, that through Christ, he and, and all others who believe receive this saving grace, something that is true of every genuine believer again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, which focuses on the person and word of Christ, is also the means by which the grace, the saving grace of God is received. Jesus said it very simply, familiar words. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Grace from God, peace from God, joy from God, forgiveness of sins from God, deliverance from the wrath of God comes only as you are rightly related to content of the gospel that is Jesus Christ who is full of grace and full of truth but Paul goes on to say something that may trouble us a bit the way it sounds not only do we receive this saving grace but he says we have received what apostleship we've received apostleship the we is clearly those who receive this And again, the reception of this commission of the gospel is through the agency of Jesus Christ, and it includes uh, these these three aspects of of, um, apostleship. So first, let's consider what is the purpose of apostleship? What does Paul mean when he says apostleship? We don't, that's used a couple of times throughout the New Testament, but the word we're most familiar with is not apostleship, but what? Simply apostle. We're simply familiar with that word apostle apostle Um, we might immediately consider then that Paul speaking of the office of the apostles those men who had been taught by and had seen and been commissioned by the resurrected Christ the basic meaning of the word apostle though is this note this I think it's out there they're the sent out ones the word apostle means one sent out the apostles are those who are sent out and it is true that Jesus has called a very specific group of men to that temporary office that we call the uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ we've made mention in our previous studies there are no apostles today there is no office of apostle today the word apostle though does not simply have the specific technical use of speaking of those sovereignly chosen 13 men in the early church who were given unique divine authority to proclaim and miraculously authenticate the gospel. But the word also has a more general use, and I've been telling you what that general use is even now. And the general use is this. It means anyone who is sent out for the purpose of the gospel. Anyone who is sent out for the purpose of the gospel. I remember teaching these things to the youth group over many years in the way that it's kind of helpful to make the distinction there's an office called apostle with a capital a capital a apostle and those are the the men that we call the apostles but there's a sense in which all of us are little a apostles because every one of us in this room are sent out to do what go therefore and make disciples of all the nations that's Jesus saying, go and be my little A apostles. I've sent you out. All authority is mine. 
I can tell you, go. And so you go, and in your going, you start talking to people about Jesus. You make much of Jesus. Isn't the danger that we make so little of Jesus? We want people to know Jesus, but then we don't open our mouths wide enough to talk about him. We talk about the weather. We talk about politics. We talk about our hobbies. And here we're being told that we've received this commission sent out for the purpose of the gospel. Little, uh, little a apostles. The commission of Jesus given to the disciples was to preach and teach to every generation of believers. In Mark chapter 16 verse 15, Jesus said what? He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. How could that be limited to just 13 men? He's saying, these men will teach you, and we will, in Acts 2.42, devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We will learn it, and then we will go to the uttermost ends of the world with what? The gospel who's concerning who? Sunday school answer? Jesus, thank you. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul exhorts Timothy with these words, uh, 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 saying that, uh, the words that you have received from me, uh, the, these things, this gospel proclamation, if you were to read chapter 1, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, listen to what he says. Entrust these the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The whole goal, the purpose of you being at church is to learn more about Jesus so that you can go out and tell others more about Jesus. Because of and through Jesus Christ, believers, notice, they are saved by grace. We've received grace, and we are commissioned, sent out to serve. We've received grace, that's salvation. We've received apostleship, that's our service. We have received from Jesus salvation so that we might serve him with the proclamation of the good news to tell others about what he has done for us on the cross. Why? Why, though, are we to go out and talk to other people? We keep getting deeper into the application. Why are we saved? And why are we commissioned? Why have we received grace? Why do we receive apostleship? Well, we read on to find the purpose of this apostleship in verse 5. Notice what Paul says. It is to bring about or for the obedience of faith. I prefer a more literal reading of the Greek text here, which would read this way. We received apostleship for obedience to the faith. We have received apostleship. We've been sent out for obedience to the faith. The word obedience speaks of one who is under the hearing of someone or some, something or being submissive to someone or something. And in this case, that something is the faith. Not just believing, but the whole content of doctrine and truth concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And faith does not, uh, again, it, it's the, the objective content of the gospel. The primary purpose of apostleship and of being saved and sent out is to proclaim Jesus Christ so that others will hear it and desire to comply to it responding to its calls to repentance and faith. Paul speaks about this purpose of the, to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 20, and 21. Listen to Acts 20, 
verses 20 and 21, Paul writes, For you yourselves know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, listen, of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message. It is time to hear that you're a sinner in need of salvation and that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Believe, have faith in him and that truth that he is God in the flesh, that he has come to bear your sin. He did die on the cross. He did rise again. Repent and believe. That's the content of our message. That's the purpose of being sent out on the commission to bring about obedience to the faith. God's purpose is that those who are saved by his grace will be empowered by the Spirit to teach others what is and how to comply with the faith, the objective demands and expectations found in God's word. Do you know that God has demands of his people? Oh, but God's a, a loving God. He is a loving God, and he knows what's best for you. And so he says, uh, to, he says that we are to abstain from sexual immorality. He says, that's my will for you in Christ Jesus. He tells us uh, that we are to pray, that we're not to quench the spirit. He gives all sorts of demands. He tells us we are to believe. He tells us that we are to let no unwholesome word come forth from our mouth except that which would edify according to the need of the moment so that it would give grace to those who hear. God has demands so we are saved by grace so that we might serve him according to his word. This is important. Do not miss this, that in Paul's mind, there is a connection between genuine faith and obedience to God. You cannot stand here and claim that I'm obedient or that I, uh, that I believe if you're not obedient to what he has commanded. Because God puts a new heart in you. God causes you, according to Ezekiel 36, God causes you to walk in all his ways. And if you're not walking in his ways, it means the spirit of God is either not dwelling in you or you are at least quenching the spirit of God. There are many today who will tell you that to expect faith to manifest itself in compliance to God's word is salvation by works. You are not saved by works. But I'll tell you your salvation does work. Your salvation will result in genuine fruits of repentance. It is true that we are saved by faith alone, but as the Puritans like to say, it not by the that is alone. True faith always results in good works. To be saved, genuinely saved, is to result in obedience to Christ. That's the message Paul was preaching. It's not enough to give lip service. Let me see your life be one that's been transformed and devoted to and living for Christ. We can say it this way, that faith is the root and obedience is the fruit. So I could ask you another question. How fruity are you? Some of you are fruitier than others, I know. Jesus said every good tree will bear what? Good fruit. 
To put it another way, what Paul preaches here is that while faith alone justifies us before God, it is never alone without a life, a corresponding obedience to the things of God. What does your life look like right now? Are you walking with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you spending enough time in the word to know what his expectations are so that you can say, oh, I wasn't doing that, but Lord, help me do that today. See, Paul is making so much application to us. And so the question is, do you know if you are saved? Paul writes this, and there could be some who are hearing the letter read for the first time and going, whoa, wait a minute, am I, have I been obedient? We might ask, do you want to know if you're saved? You, have you ever had people ask you that? Can you help me know if I'm saved? I'm just a human. You know, what do I know? But I can tell you something. Here's what I'll say. Pastor, can you tell me if I'm saved? Well, show me your fruit. Show me your fruit. Show me your obedience to Christ, and that will be a good indication of whether or not you're saved. Where there is no fruit, there is no salvation. Where there is not a desire or demonstration to obey Christ in all that he has commanded, there is no salvation. How can you say that? I didn't. Jesus did. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In 1 John 2, 4, we read the one who says, I have come to know him, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Show me your fruit. Obedience is the fruit. This, my friends, is obedience to the faith. And this is the purpose, the reason why God grants us commission to proclaim obedience of the faith to all that we have opportunity. And that leads us really to the next point, to the purview. We're looking at the purpose. We now look at the purview of his apostleship or of apostleship not on Swedish, but the purview of apostleship. So they just all pop up. There it is. Now you can cheat and look ahead, okay? What do I mean by purview? The purview is the, the target audience. Uh, who is Paul talking to in this particular moment in, in saying, okay, this gospel is to be proclaimed. It is, you've been receiving this commission, and to who are you to tell it to? Your your very closest friends only. Notice what he says here. This gospel is to be proclaimed among, that is in the sphere of all the Gentiles. Or we might better understand it, read it this way, among all the nations. That this gospel is to be uh, proclaimed to anyone and everyone. We just said what, read what Jesus said, right? Go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. My uh, rendition of that verse is if it moves, preach the gospel to it. Well, the tree moves. Go ahead, practice on the tree. By saying among the Gentiles, Paul is not 
refusing or denying the necessity to preach the gospel to the Jews, we know that he does. But by saying this, he's communicating that the gospel message, the one that originated among the Jews, is not only to be uh, communicated to the Jewish nation, but to every nation, every tongue, every tribe, all kinds of people. You and I are more likely more Gentile than Jewish, right? Right. We are here expressing faith in Christ because God has faithfully raised up people generation after generation after generation. He has sent them out to do one thing, preach the gospel, proclaim this truth. And it's the same gospel that they preach, that we receive, and that we preach now. We are to go out and proclaim the same gospel message so that God's chosen from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will believe and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. The purview of the gospel is to the nations. In Revelation 5, 9, the song of the four living creatures and the 24 elders bowing down before the lamb who had been slain said what? We heard this, right? Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so let me make this application for you and for myself. There's no one outside the purview for whom you make this proclamation of Jesus Christ. Your neighbors across the street need to hear the gospel from your lips. Your co-workers need to hear the gospel from your lips. Parents, your children need to hear the gospel from your lips. Children, your parents need to hear the gospel from your lips. It is open to anyone and everyone. Your duty bound, if you are a believer in Christ, to share this good news that God promised beforehand in his holy prophets. God has called each of us who believe to call the people, the nations, to obedience to the faith, calling them to repent and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But there's, there's more. Some of you looked ahead and saw it. The prize of apostleship. What's the prize of apostleship? What's the ultimate goal? Why would we do this? Why would I want to go and talk to my crazy-looking neighbor about Jesus? Because I'm more concerned for the glory of Christ than I am about what my neighbor might think about me in this life. He might think I'm crazy. I might trip up on my words. doesn't matter. I have truth, and I need to share that truth. And the prize is the glory of Christ, the, for his namesake, it says. That's the prize for which Paul and the church are to labor. The glory of Christ, the, the sake for the sake of his name or his namesake. The end goal, the prize for all the commissioned by God, giving spiritual gifts, those divine enablements by which we are to uh, encourage the body in Christ. They're never for ourselves. They're never for our own glory. They're never to draw attention to ourselves But everything we do is meant to draw attention to Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. It is for the glory of his name 
the name that is above every name, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Read Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, and understand that God the Father said that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is sovereign. And that will be to the glory of God. This is the prize for which we labor. So we have the agency of the gospel commission, that is Christ, who has given us these two attributes receiving, or by which we receive grace, service, the pro- and uh, the proclaiming of the gospel. Uh, 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 excuse me, grace is salvation, and then service, the pro- proclaiming of the gospel. And now we look at the audience of the gospel commission, verses 6 and 7. The, go- the audience of the gospel commission. Speaking to, uh, speaking of the believers in Rome now, in verse 6, he says this about them, among whom you also are. Are what? You're among the Gentile nations. You're among the very people that this was intended. Do you realize that the, the church at Rome was not started by the Apostle Paul? It wasn't started by Peter. It was started by some folks who happened to show up on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2 when Peter stood up and what did he preach? The gospel. And some folks from Rome were there and they believed and they received grace and apostleship. They were sent back home. And what did they do? They started talking to people about Jesus and a church was born and now Paul's coming along saying I'm going to ground you you talk about being grounded in theology there's no better book to read than Romans to be grounded in theology Paul comes along and says okay God's been so good to you he's graced you with with his salvation and with service and now let me fill you in on some wondrous truths that will help you in your proclamation of the gospel and so Paul is is saying that the purpose to bring about obedience of the faith by preaching the gospel had already taken root in these believers. These believers are among those who had heard and would continue to benefit by hearing more of the gospel, more of what it means to follow Christ. And Paul just begins, he's just teasing them right now. You know, these people, I will just let me just give you a little tidbit. He's just giving them a, a little teaser, a trailer of what's to come throughout the rest of the book. And he begins by making mention of who these people are now because they believe. And notice what he says in verse 6. He says that it's those who are called of Jesus Christ. You know, we have a, all sorts of interesting lingo. We, we call ourselves Christians, and we know that uh, in the book of Acts, that term was used uh, not as a, a, um, a term of, of uh, positivity. It was a pejorative. It was a put-down. To call somebody a Christian, you're one of those little pathetic Christs, is the idea. And uh, it's, it's interesting that the, the term Christian kind of caught on, but Paul doesn't call them Christians. He calls them what? The called of Jesus Christ. We could be called the called. Of Jesus Christ. And that's what he says here. These are those who, like Paul, remember he referred to himself in verse 1, called as apostle, one who's been designated, marked out as an apostle. Now he says, you are 
marked out as one who belongs to Christ. Remember that the idea is that you've been chosen, plucked out. You belong to Christ. And that's another question, isn't it? Paul is speaking to those who belong to Christ. Do you belong to Christ? That becomes an imperative question as we begin this. I want you to hold on to this idea of being the called personally belonging to Christ because he's the one who called you and marked you and plucked you out. But before we talk about that, let's look at how Paul further describes these who are the called of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 7, the called of Jesus Christ are the beloved of God. Now, if you were here for 2 Peter, you know something about that word beloved. You recognize that when, we, when, when Paul now is speaking of these believers who are in, in Rome, he gives them this high term of affection. You're not just loved by me. You're not just loved by a, a handful of churches. You're loved by God himself. Now, we noticed in our study of Second Peter that this word beloved is a term that generally is used with reference to whom? The Son of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the testimony of God the Father that was heard by Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is Jesus who is the beloved. But for all those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning if you believe, if you have come to faith, if you've repented of your sin and have received that grace, you've expressed your faith in him and follow him and imitate his ways, you are now in Christ, therefore you are beloved. God has to love you, if you want to put it in that terminology, because he sees in you his son, and he cannot deny his son. We are now his highly favored, highly valued, treasured one. And I'd like to point out to you this morning that Paul indicates that this is true of every single believer. This is not something that's just true for a handful of people. If you are in Christ, you are beloved. You need not sit here and think ill of yourself or think uh, to diminish yourself. I, I, I believe, but I don't believe like this person. I, they, they just seem to have so much, and I can't be loved by God like that person. God loves you as much as he loves his son, Jesus Christ, if you have faith in him. And I don't know how he could love you any more. And he certainly can't love you any less. What a blessed truth that regardless of who you are regardless of where you're from if you are in Christ you have become the object of God's divine love you are the beloved but he not only refers to them as the beloved of God that uh, that great title he refers to them next in in verse 7 as saying that the called of Jesus Christ are called saints just as in verse 1 where Paul is not called to be an apostle. The word called here is not a verb. It's actually an adjective telling us that, that Paul was a called one. That's the same thing we have going on here, that believers are not said here to be receiving a calling. They are rather, they are the called ones, saints. You equate, put an equal sign there. Called ones equals saints. If you are called, 
you are the holy ones. If you are called, you belong to Christ. This is the idea. In other words, to be a saint is to be a called one, and to be a called one is to be a saint. And to be a called one is a reminder that our salvation and that our holiness, uh, that which is what the word saint means, a holy one, does not begin with ourselves. It does not originate in ourselves. I can't make myself a saint. And the church cannot make a person a saint. Only God makes people saints, and he makes everyone a saint who believes in Jesus Christ. Without exception, all of these are holy ones. Everyone who is in Rome, it originates with God. God initiates the call to salvation. It is God who issues the divine summons to those who he chooses for salvation. And they are, in the words of Romans 8.28, called according to God's purpose to be conformed to the image of his son his son who is holy and if you are in christ you are a holy one a saint so wake up you who are in christ you are not diminished you are not second rate you are not unvaluable to god you are his holy one you are the called you are beloved of God, and you have been commissioned by him to proclaim the wonder of the gospel. The purpose to, is to be conformed to the image of God, to the, or to, of Christ, to the likeness of Christ. Christ Jesus, again, who is the Holy One. Christ Jesus, who is the holiest of holies. And where are you if you are a believer? You are in him. You are in the Holy One. Oh, I know this world throws so much at us, doesn't it? You watch the news and you can feel bad about being an American. You watch the news and you can be bad about your ethnic background that first got you here to America. You, you talk to certain people and they'll put you down because you're a Christian. You can talk to people who don't understand you or why you say or do the things that you do and we begin to think well maybe I don't amount to anything but what's Paul saying to these believers at Rome you amount much not because of yourself because you believe in him who is the holiest him who is the beloved him referred to as saints then means that because of our relationship with God through Christ we are now a consecrated people, a devoted people, a sanctified people, a set apart people in Christ Jesus for him. By virtue of, a, of the new birth, of being born again, we are now separate ones who live lives that are set apart for God and set apart from the world and sin. We are those who because we've been radically changed from within, now live distinctively Christian lives without in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We are those who, by the aid of the grace of God, by the divine empowerment of the Holy Spirit, are to be morally pure and have distinct lives from those around us. We are called to be, are you ready for this? We are called to be holy, 
according to the word of God, even as God himself has told us. Leviticus 11.43 I am the Lord your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11.43, when God says to the nation of Israel, I, I am the Lord your God, you shall be holy for I am holy. Do you know the context of uh, Leviticus 11? Dietary restrictions. After a long list, these are the things that you can eat. These are the things you're not supposed to eat. You can eat this, don't eat that. This long list, don't eat these things that creep and crawl and do all of that. And then he ends that statement by saying what? You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And what does that make you uh, think of? Makes me think of Paul's statement to the Corinthians. Whether then you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. If God cannot be glorified in your eating and drinking, he cannot be glorified in anything you do. If you can't glorify God in the most mundane, routine things of your life, you will not glorify him in anything we are to be holy even as the lord is holy and that was repeated to the church in first peter chapter uh, chapter 1 verse 16 you shall be holy for the lord your god is holy another significant consideration about the use of this term saint meaning the holy one is that believers are called saints presently paul called these believers saints not that hey maybe someday some council will declare you a saint if you're dead and you've done some good things. No, it says very specifically, you are presently saints. Nothing that we wait for into the future. Holy ones now, according to God's word, a saint is not some person who after death is voted into some special honorary category, spiritual hall of fame. No, a saint is a saved person living, breathing believer who is now presently in the world but is not of the world. He is a true Christian now. She is a genuine believer now. This is what the Romans were. This is what we are believers now. I stand before the company of God's saints, his holy ones. And the gospel is what got you here, and the gospel is what is to be proclaimed so that we might see others be in the same position, being called the holy ones of God. One final observation about this word saint is that Paul uses it not to speak of what the Romans were before they were saved. There are no saints prior to Christ. This is what they were made after they were saved. Paul says they were called saints, not born saints. We don't have a bunch of babies running around here that are saints. We know that, right? What does this really mean for us? It reminds us that until we are saved, we are just as ungodly as those who are living around us presently. It reminds us that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins before coming to Christ. It reminds us that we were all alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us, because of the blindness of our hearts. So Paul wrote to the Ephesians. But now, 
But now, because of the transforming power of what? The gospel, who's concerning who? Jesus. We, like these believers in Rome, are made a new people. We have become the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are his saints. Well, let's finish this up by noting that the call of Jesus Christ Receive grace and peace. Paul closes with a very familiar benediction. If you're familiar with the Paul uh, with Paul's uh, uh, benedictions that he gives, usually at the beginning of his letters, he often uses this phraseology: "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." There's a sense in which I wish I could just give you a mom- few moments of silence to consider that. Grace and peace from God, our Father and Jesus Christ. We've already noted true spiritual grace or God's good and unmerited favor refers to all the spiritual blessings which God has granted us as his people in Christ, beginning with what? Our salvation. The peace of God, which is not the absence of turmoil. Did you know peace is not the absence of, of turmoil outwardly? It is an inward serenity in the midst of any turmoil, that which comes exclusively from or out of a different source, and that source being our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You going through difficulties in this life? You have turmoils and struggles relationship issues who are you looking to the circumstances of this world will not offer you grace and peace as much as we might like to think so we we all do not always receive grace and peace from people around us sometimes those who we love the most may not extend grace and peace to us so where do I go whom, to whom do we look to? Grace and peace comes through a right relationship to Jesus. And like I like to say, trying to find peace without the Prince of Peace is like trying to nail jello to the wall. Try that. Well, I'm going to apparently do that this morning. On verse 7, uh, on the close of verse 7, Augustine made the following observation. <clears throat> I think I have this right. Grace, then, is from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, by which our sins, which had turned us from God, are forgiven, and from them also is peace, whereby we are reconciled to God. Since through grace hostilities dissolve once sins are remitted, now we may cling in peace to him from whom our sins alone had torn us. But when these sins have been forgiven through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall have peace with no separation between us and God. This is what Paul is saying. This is my prayer. As we begin this great letter, this is my prayer. My desire for you, some of you are going to listen to this letter. You'll be sitting here through the preaching of this letter, and you will feel like I may not be at peace with God. That's okay, because we're going to tell you how you can have peace with God. 
You may say, I may, I'm too unworthy to receive any blessing from God. No, you're not. The grace of God is sufficient. And so Paul's prayer, grace and peace, grace to you and peace. Oh, blessed thought. But where does that grace and peace begin? It all begins, as we noted in verse 6, you must be the called of Jesus Christ. And remember that phrase, being called, it means that you belong to Christ. And so I ask you, do you personally belong to Christ? What does it mean to personally belong to Jesus? In one word, it means to believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. And to believe means that you practice, you put into practice your confidence in the person and the work and the merits and the words of Christ. The idea of believing is not simply here leaving with some facts. Oh, I know a few things about Jesus. It's not about head knowledge about who God is, man, what is sin, who is Jesus Christ. It is to have that confidence, a trust and then the practice of what God has communicated to you in his word. And because you have God's word, this faith that you're being called to is not blind. It's perfectly clear. Open the book. We're not called to trust in the Lord without evidence. We're certainly not told, nor can we understand everything about God because he is God. But he does tell us about those things that we most need to know. Based upon what he has told us, what he has revealed to us in his word, we have every logical and philosophical reason for believing in Jesus. We possess objective evidence that anyone can observe and study, whether we are speaking of God as the creator of heaven and earth or of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. We have subjective evidence that is personal to ourselves, those things we know that God has accomplished in our lives to change us and to lead us and to comfort us. We have historical evidence, archaeological evidence, eyewitness evidence. We have everything necessary for life and godliness. So if you believe, I'd say excel so much. If you have not, why not? Let me remind you that every one of us in this room have faith. The only question is, what is the object of your faith? Or who is the object? Faith in yourself? Guess good. Faith in our government? Faith in big pharma? Faith in humanity? Who is the object of your faith? The supreme object of your faith? The object of faith in the life of the Christian is to be Christ himself, Christ alone. Why? Because Paul told us he is the content of the gospel. Without such faith, we are left hopeless and helpless. And we are headed to a Christless eternity. God desires for all to have faith, to be believing, and to belong to Christ. And so I ask you to believe in Jesus Christ. And to believe in Jesus is to know yourself to be a sinner and that Christ has come to save sinners. 
saved not to a diminished experience of life, but to an extraordinary fullness of life. As Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I want the abundant life. Do you? It's found only in Christ. This is the gospel of God. It's continuity. It is God's good news from the beginning. It's content as it's focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ and it's commission calling sinners to believe and obey the Lord Jesus Christ, thereby going and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. I pray that this will be the experience of all here today who cry out in repentance and faith saying, Jesus, I believe. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that we have as we consider these these opening words of the Apostle Paul that speak to us of the gospel, of the essence of the gospel, who is your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would see him for all who he is, all that he has done. We look forward to what you will open our eyes to behold as we continue in the study in the book of Romans. But this morning, may it be simply this, to answer the question, do I belong to Jesus Christ? And how do I know? Do I see a faith that desires to know Jesus, who, who has seen salvation by grace, who recognizes that I've been sent out to proclaim the gospel, that I see fruit in my lives? And Lord, if there is anyone who's uncertain about that standing for their, themselves, I pray, Father God, you would open their eyes to behold these truths, that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved and be transformed, and that he would seek to speak to a believer about what it means to follow Christ. Now, Father, we pray that our minds might be fixed upon your son, Jesus. Help us to set our mind on things above where Christ is seated at your right hand. We ask these